Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. So we've been talking the past few weeks about how God, the great designer and maker and artist, created us with intention. And the more that we get to know the artist, the more we are going to live uh, as his creation, as what he has made. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some more specific areas of our life. And we started talking about relationships. So for the next few Sundays, we're going to be honing in on the relationship of marriage. Now, if you're married, this might have some immediate um, excitement or implication for you. Uh, But if you're watching this and you're single, no longer married, uh, there could be this question of like, why would I pay attention? Should I tune out the next couple weeks? And I would strongly invite you just to journey with us uh, for a couple of different reasons. One is if you are desiring to be married, we have a desperate need for us to have a clarified lens of what does that mean through a biblical lens. And then also, um, if you are married, our hope is that you would have a sense of hope and restoration and courage um, and encouragement imparted to you. And then if you are, um, maybe you've already been married and you've walked through a divorce or the loss of a loved one, Um, My hope is that even through this, there would be healing, not in so much of what marriage looks like in your context, but marriage is one of the prime examples that God gives us of His faithfulness towards us. And so wherever life stage you're in, I just want to invite you to journey with us as collectively as a church, we regain the image and the intention of what God designs for marriage. So we're going to be doing... Uh, looking at three themes uh, in this video. Number one, we're going to be looking at how we are called to have covenantal love rather than contractual love. The second thing is that the intention of God is that we would have a complementary love rather than a compatibility-shaped love. And thirdly, that we'd have a cherishing love rather than a calloused love. And so we're going to be kind of doing a 30,000-foot flyby of just the major theological themes around marriage. So buckle up. Um, Before we dive into the scripture, I wanted to kind of set the table a little bit about the context that we find ourselves in. Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, quotes that over the last 40 years, the leading marriage indicators have been in steady decline. The divorce rate is nearly twice the rate it was in 1960. In 1970, 89% of all births were to married parents, but today only 60% are. And most tellingly, over 72% of American adults were married in 1960, but only 50% were in 2008. And within that decline over the past uh, 50, 60 years, uh, we've kind of reached a new level since 2020. The BBC reported that leading British law firm Stewart's logged a 122% increase in inquiries between July and October compared to the same period last year of um, law wanting to file for divorce. 
Charity Citizens Advice reported a spike in search for online advice on an ending a relationship. In the U.S., a major legal contract creation site recently announced a 34% rise in sales of its basic divorce agreement, with newlyweds who'd gotten married in the previous five months making 20% of the sales. And so I don't know if you've sensed this or felt this. I know uh, when March 2020 hit and all of a sudden I'm at home a lot more. Um, that first month was rough, um, which is, you know, kind of surprising. I mean, it's it's surprising that Jen wouldn't just want more of me around all the time. I know. But uh, but if you're like us, like many people that the last couple of years have been hard on relationships and and marriages no exception maybe for you it wasn't a month or two maybe it's still going on and so we have to go back to the scriptures and be able to ask ourselves the question of what does he have to say because marriage has been changing drastically not just over the past 50 60 years but over the past couple hundred years um, marriage as we've known it throughout human history has changed because of the Enlightenment, which we talked about last week, this major shift that happened in the 1700s because of the rise of science and reason. And along with that came this promise of the individual self. If you can make yourself happy and fulfilled, then life would be better and you would be more at peace. Um, you even see um, Jane Austen's novels of Pride and prejudice and different things like that kind of encapsulate this tension between traditional marriages, which were largely formulated by family members for the betterment of the tribe or of the family or for society to this leaning in of individual romance. And I think it would be wrong to highlight one or the other is better than the other because they both are filled with flaws. I mean, if you look back hundreds of years ago where marriages were arranged and you had no say in it, there's very little romance or love at all, um, but it was a sense of duty and sacrifice, um, had tons of flaws. The more modern context since the Enlightenment that marriage is about self-fulfillment and romance um, and whatever this is going to do to fulfill me definitely has its flaws as well. Again, Keller in his book says that we should rightly object to the binary choice that both traditional, self-sacrificing for the good of the family, and contemporary, individual fulfillment above all else, marriage seems to give us. Is the purpose of marriage to deny your interest for the good of the family? Or is it rather to assert your interest for the fulfillment of yourself? The Christian teaching does not offer a choice between fulfillment and sacrifice, but rather mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. And so what we have to do today and what we're going to kind of hopefully dive into at the beginning of this talk is this movement from understanding marriage in its contractual state and moving it to the, what the Bible calls a covenantal state. Because contracts are defined by transactions. Contracts are created for the safeguard of each party to get what they deserve. And so by essence, contracts only work as long as the individual is getting what was promised to them. Covenant works the opposite. Covenant is for the benefit of the agreement, of the unit, of the family, and doing whatever it takes to continue to nurture what that is. And 
When you enter into the marriage relationship, there's no relationship like it in the sense that it reveals your level of selfishness unlike anything else. I mean, I grew up and I had uh, involved parents. I had siblings who were close in age. Lots of them developed my character. I had friends. I grew up and I lived in the college dorms, which grew my character. And I... um, I had all these different experiences that like were were shaping me and changing me. And when I got married, I was shocked to find out, even after being friends with Jen for a year and then dating for another year after that, just how selfish I was and that all of that selfishness was laying dormant underneath until I got married. What is it about marriage that reveals kind of the cracks of who you are of like, oh, there's actually a lot within me that is very kind of self-focused and inward focused and as you do that you realize this isn't going to work if two people remain uh, inwardly focused and rather than focusing on God and and ultimately love for one another um, it's going to be a pretty rocky journey and that's because when God designed marriage it was out of the overflow of who he is and if you remember last week we talked about How God's creative act flows out of his Trinitarian relational beings. One God made up of three persons. And so in Genesis 127, it says that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. There's this blessedness that God out of his own image then creates man and woman, creates this relational being out of his own relational being to reflect who he is. If you go to Genesis chapter 2, it begins to kind of parse out what that looks like. And at the end of it, it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they became one flesh. That word united, well, there's a whole lot of interesting things happening in this person. Number one, leaving, um, leaving his father and mother, Adam doesn't have a father and mother, right? He's leaving what? Well, this is a sense of you are leaving all that you know and being united to another person. You're being, you, Adam is being united to Eve. A man is united to his wife. And this is where we start to unpack the biblical principle of covenant. A lot of theologians believe the entire Bible can be best understood through the lens of covenant. There's a binding relational agreement that is contingent not on self-fulfillment, but at all costs, staying together. This is the kind of relationship that God starts to reveal to Israel and starts to reveal to Abraham as he makes a nation out of this one family, as he promises himself to Abraham and his descendants, that I will be his God. And when you make a covenant in this sense, you are saying, listen, if this doesn't work, this relationship doesn't work, I will bear the penalty of it. And normally in ancient cultures, the weaker vessel or the one who owed the money would be the one to take on the consequence. But shockingly in the Old Testament, in Genesis 15, in this bizarre vision that's happening, 
God essentially explains to Abraham, listen, I'm going to be faithful to you and your descendants, my people I'm going to be faithful to. And if there is a, a severing of the relationship, I'll take the consequence. All of this, which is setting up ultimately to Jesus' fulfillment, which leads to the question, well, how, how do we see this played out in the New Testament? How do we see covenant played out? Because if you read the Old Testament, what you find is the people of God are consistently being unfaithful in their covenant relationship. They're not living up to the terms of that agreement. And in the same way, if Jen was not living up to the agreement we made on our wedding day, if I was not living up to the, to the vows we made on our wedding day, it would put a tremendous strain on a relationship and a lot of fear that it may not work. And after generation after generation of unfaithfulness, God finally comes. And rather than coming with judgment on the weaker party, which is us, he takes upon all of the ramifications of our unfaithfulness onto himself through Jesus. But as he's doing this, he invites us not only just to receive it as a gift, but to receive it as an example and as a model of this is how I would design your marriage covenant to work. And so one of the most condensed, uh, profound scriptures in all the Bible about marriage is when Paul's writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he's writing them about the gospel, the amazing news of what God has come to do through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And he begins to start talking about the culture that they live in and the, in this, this tug of war that's going on between their flesh and their spirit and what they're wanting to do. And he encourages them in Ephesians 5.18 says, Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It is through the Holy Spirit of God he calls them into living and he gives them these different rules. You should sing hymns of praises. And, and as he gives these indicatives of this command, he says this radical statement. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's kind of how he ends that, being filled with the Spirit, gives this list and ends the list with submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. He then takes these very common, what are called household codes that Aristotle created a couple hundred years earlier, and he begins to start saying what a Spirit filled, gospel-formed relationship looks like. And it begins with husbands and wives. And he opens up this conversation about husbands and wives, this idea of what a covenant looks like because of the gospel. And he says it begins with mutual submission, submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. And as he's talking about that, he moves into more specific elements. He says in verse 22, Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I know what you're thinking. You just heard the S word, right? You just heard the word submit, which carries with it a ton of negative connotation and baggage, rightfully so. Unfortunately, uh, not just within history, but within recent history within Christianity, that word submit has been used to manipulate and to control um, women. And the reason I want to take time on this passage is, number one, is to understand that because of what Jesus has done, number one, we are a spirit-filled people. Number two, we are a mutually submissive people. 
the verse in Ephesians 5.22 when it says, Wives, submit your husbands. If you read it in the Greek, the word submit actually isn't even in there. It says, submit one to another, wives to your husband. So the command in the literal sense is to Christians, not to wives. Wives, obviously, if they're Christians, fall under that. So it says, wives, do this to your husbands. But then he gives more explicit ways of how husbands can live in a mutually submissive way to their wives by saying you are to love your wives in a self-sacrificial way, the same way that Jesus loved you. And so sadly, it just gets muddled and we start thinking this is some sort of power play and how do you do this well? Rather than understanding though, Jesus is the model. And you might say, well, how is Jesus the model of a submissive covenantal relationship? And I would encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. You see, we, uh, as Jesus comes to redeem his bride, he does this through the self-sacrificing love that ultimately landed him on the cross, but he also does this by submitting to his Father. And so if you have this aversion to the word submit, can I encourage you that the, the ultimate example of submission does not come from a woman, it comes from Jesus. Jesus was ultimately submitted to his Father. And it's through that submission that we find in Philippians 2, that's to men and women, that we are invited to enter into our marriage relationships the same way. And keep in mind, this is not talking about women and men. This is talking about marriage, husbands and wives. That there is to be in the same way Jesus modeled submission, and which was, think about the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's literally expressing to the Father, he says, if there's some other way that this could happen, Please let this cup pass from me as he's talking about the cross. But he actually says, Lord, Father, your will be done, not my own. It's that self-preferring thing. And the husbands have opportunities to to live that exact same way towards that. He just gives us more specific examples. It doesn't just stop at submission, but ultimately leads to a cruciform type of self-sacrificial love. And I think what has happened is so oftentimes we get so caught up on that front end of things that we forget that there's another layer that we are being called to. And husbands, if you're watching this, and if it feels like marriage feels like it's costing you something, I want you to remember the cross. If it feels like loving your wife sometimes feels like it's, it is, it is, it is hurt. It is costing you at maybe even a painful level. Look to the cross because not only is this a model, Jesus loved you in a costly way. What a privilege it is to love our wives in the same manner. Now, when we talk about this mutually submissive, self-sacrificial type of covenant relationship, it's easy to start being like, I don't know if this sounds fun. Like, I, I don't know if... Maybe I want to go back to what our culture and the enlightenment is saying. It's like, I just want to do whatever feels good. And once it doesn't feel good anymore, then maybe it's not for me. And I know I'm making light of that, but that's honestly where a lot of people end up. Like if this isn't working out for me, which is contractual, then I'm out. Covenantal says, this is hard for me. I choose love anyways. Keller again in his book says that many people hear this and say, I'm sorry, I can't give love if I don't feel it. I can't fake it. 
That's too mechanical for me. I can understand that reaction, but Paul doesn't simply call us to a naked action. He also commands us to think as we act. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This means we we must say to ourselves something like this. Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us, not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That is why I'm going to love my spouse. Speak to your heart like that and then fulfill the promises you made on your wedding day. I think one of the great lies of of our day is to think that because I'm not happy now, I can never be happy later. Because my wife, because my husband is acting this way now, I guess this is going to be the rest of my life. And statistically, that's just not true. Dr. Linda Waite of the University of Chicago, in her study, said that most striking of all, longitudinal studies demonstrate that two-thirds of those unhappy marriages out there will become happy within five years. If people stay married and do not get divorced, the benefits of divorce have been oversold. Think about that. Two-thirds of the relationships that are unhappy now within five years become happy. That's the power of covenant. I mean, one of the clearest pictures of covenant relationship we have is between a parent and a, and a child. Um, when my kids were born, and to this day, uh, there is a lot of effort, energy, finances, time, cost poured into my kids and what they give in return, other than being pretty cute, is very little, right? They, they can't contribute much into that relationship, but never once in my thought am I thinking, hmm, I don't know if they're carrying their end of the bargain here. I don't know if they're really you know, pitching in as much as they want, or I don't really like how they're making me feel. I would never even think about that. Well, because that's, in, in our culture, it's one of the only preserved relationships that looks like a covenant. And so rather when I'm with my kids, I'm just thinking about, I love them. And the reality is they may move out of the house and there's never a sense of repayment, but just because I am committed to them. And oftentimes, sadly, even within marriage, we invest so much time, energy, and effort into our kids that we forget that we are called into that same covenantal relationship we have with our spouse. So that's, that's kind of our, our first main topic. If you were to get one overarching theme, what the Bible has to say about marriage is we have to move from contractual to covenantal, choosing to model our relationship after the Trinity and ultimately after Jesus's proof of his love through submission to the Father and through self-sacrifice on the cross. Let that be the, the source and the well that that frames and forms your marriage. The second thing I want to talk about is to be intention, intentional within our marriage. We must have a complementary love rather than compatible love. And when I say complementary, don't think complementarian or egalitarian. We're not having that conversation now. But complementary, I just mean that 
this sense of the, in the difference of your spouse, there is value added rather than having this high, high value of compatibility. And I don't know if you've ever had this conversation, but it seems like that's, that's our culture's like Hail Mary, that if I can find someone who is compatible with me, then I'll have a happy marriage. And that's kind of been the promise in the past 20 years with online dating is that now we have these algorithms that give us the most advanced tools ever to create what? Compatibility. Compatibility. And so the question is, rightfully so, is, is it working? I came across this article from the Philadelphia Inquirer. It says that researchers at the University of Chicago's Department of Psychology and Harvard's University Department of Ep- Epidemiology found analysis of online dating sites revealed that the various sites were only marginally significant over the period of study and were not significantly different after controlling for um, covarieties for how long marriages last. And all that to say, all of these, um, Harvard and University of Chicago did this study of like, are are these relationships that meet online, which is now one-third of people getting married have met online, do they last as long? Do they have as much happiness? And what's funny is this study that was paid for by eHarmony, which I don't know if that creates some bias, but um, found that it's very little difference at all. Well, why is that? Well, I think it's because compatibility kind of overpromises because compatibility is essentially saying this, I need to find someone who doesn't need me to change. Think about it. That's exactly what compatibility means. I want to find that perfect puzzle piece that's not going to rub against wrongly against my edges and change who I am. Rather, I need to find someone who just accepts me for who I am and I can just be me. That's the perfect match for me. I never have to change. And the Bible speaks very little to nothing at all about compatibility but has a lot to say about how we can complement one another and how our differences actually help form us into being a more accurate depiction of what Christ intended. I remember when I was young, it was probably in junior high, I was at youth group, and we were joking around about who we're going to marry someday. And I, I remember one of our youth leaders is asking me, like, what kind of person do you want to marry? I'm like, oh, I'm going to marry someone who like just takes care of me. And just like, I go on this whole list. <laughs> And my youth leader's like, oh, so you want to marry your mom? I was like, what? It's like, yeah, you just want to marry someone who's just going to like coddle you and take care of you. And again, this is seventh grade version of me. But it, it woke me up to something of realizing like, am I really just looking for someone who requires the least amount of change in me? And more importantly, is that what God wants for me? Now, do I believe that God orchestrated Jen and I coming together totally. God is incredibly involved in our lives. But I don't think that God scanned the world and found the person who would make me change the least, but rather the person who would come alongside me and help me change most directly and formatively into the person, the man of God, the image of Christ that I was called to be. Let's read a uh, Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 and read about the introduction of the first marriage. It says, The Lord God said, 
It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The word suitable means equal and opposite. You go down to verse 20, says, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the woman. And the man said, and he just starts writing poetry. Literally is what happening. Is it now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh? And she shall be called a woman for she was taken out of man. And there's a whole lot going in here in the introduction of the first marriage. Largely is that when God created Adam, there is no suitable helper for him. And those two words need, need to take some time. Number one is suitable is like that equal opposite thing. Different. It's opposite. It's complementary. And then the word helper often gets a bad rap, just like, just like submit. Now the helper is a term that is given to the woman, but it is not primarily given to the woman. If you do a word study in the Old Testament, that word is the Hebrew word ezer. And ezer is most often used for God coming to the assistance of Israel in a war, and sometimes even another country's military force coming in to save Israel. So the word ezer literally means a strong military-like rescuing force. So, before you kind of have that emotional allergy to helper being some sort of, um, I don't know, misogynistic, hyper kind of traditional role, I want you to stop and realize God chooses this term for himself. It's this strong rescuing kind of strength that comes because you are the opposite, that because you are different wives to your husbands you can bring a strength that they cannot have on their own and they and you all said amen we knew that the term that we find in ephesians that's given to men is not helper but it's head and again a lot of baggage attached to that but the headship is always attached to jesus and the question is if man's to be the head and jesus is the image of the head what's the picture it's not of a boss matter of fact jesus put his divine roles and rights aside not his divinity but the roles and rights of it so that he could become fully man and as he took on humanity he served he gave his life and so if you like that term head please know that the two greatest examples of headship we have through jesus life is through radical service and through loving sacrifice. But I think it's important to point out that the Bible, although we live in a culture that wants to just do away with all sorts, all, any sort of role between man and woman, there's no difference. Gender is just a construct. All of it and all of this conversations going on that can be really confusing as we go back to the Bible, what we see is a celebration of differences, not of worth, not of dignity, not of what they can or cannot do, but rather in the specific design. And so what does it look like for a wife to live into her unique, strong, rescuing type role? What does it look like for a husband to live into his strong, serving, self-giving kind of role in their relationship? And I think for us to do this, we have to, 
we have to be honest that we, rather than our differences from your spouse, and you might be like, Benji, you have no idea how different my husband is from me. We have nothing in common. Or Benji, you have no idea how different my wife is from me. Can I just encourage you, what if God is not shocked by how different your spouse is from you? Gary Thomas wrote um, one of my recent favorite books on marriage called Cherish. Highly recommend it. In the book, he says this, What if your husband or wife's faults are God's tools to shape you? What if the very thing that most bugs you about your spouse constitutes God's plan to teach you something new? Are you willing to accept that that your marriage makeover, the process of moving a man or woman might begin with you? I mean, it's kind of a daunting thought. Just think about the things that bug you most about your spouse. What if God is using those to reveal something about you and to grow you? And the second thing is it doesn't have to just be negative. There's an incredible amount of positive differences in your spouse, but oftentimes our attention immediately goes to the negative. So how is your spouse different from you in a positive, beautiful, redemptive kind of way? I think about this every day. I think about how if I was the only one raising our kids, how much our children would miss out on because of what Jen brings to the table. I think about what kind of pastor I would be if Jen wasn't there leading me into compassion and creativity. I mean, there's so much about the goodness of my wife that if I'm not careful, I can miss. And I just encourage you to step into that. Which leads to our last point. Is cherishing is having a cherishing love rather than a calloused love. You ever had a callous before? Um, I used to play a lot of guitar um, for years and years of my life. And I was to the point where I could play for hours and I would, and I would never hurt. Um, I haven't played as much and I've been teaching my kids again. And all of a sudden what I'm realizing is those calluses kind of went away. What I think can happen within marriage is because we're with someone every day, we know them in and out, and there's the busyness of life and the bills and the stress and the things going on, and all of a sudden, that heart that initially was soft becomes calloused and hard. And my invitation to you is what would it look for you, rather than having a calloused love, to have a cherished love, to value and to hold your spouse in high regard, in the same way you cherish maybe your favorite belonging, maybe that's a surfboard or an instrument or a car or whatever, and you protect it and spend time on it, how much infinitely more so your spouse. Don't become callous to them. Cherish them. Um, again, if you've never read The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Kelly, you absolutely should. If you've never read the book Cherished by Gary Thomas, you absolutely should. And just invite the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's where it all begins to begin to start changing how you see your spouse. When Paul's talking to husbands in Ephesians, he says, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. He's talking about how we should love our wives. You should feed and care. You should, And that word care is how we should love our wives is used one other time in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians when Paul says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Meaning that the image, the other image we have of caring 
is a literally a mother nursing her child. And the amount of care and protection, sensitivity, slowness that that takes should, should challenge. Do we cherish our wives? Proverbs talks about in 5.18, may you delight in the wife of your youth. Is your, does your wife feel delighted in? Like, man, my wife gives me delight. I cherish her. I care for her. I think about Song of Solomon's, the, the way that the, the woman talks about her husband. Um, when she, she says, my beloved is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadow flees. Turn, my beloved. There's, there's this cherishing, this care about it. And I think in the busyness of life, we be, can begin to expect something from our spouse rather than cherishing them. Uh, one more il- illustration from, from Gary Thomas's book. He says this, famed Russian-born ballet choreographer, George Blanchine once said, ballet is woman. The best male dancers recognize that their role is about showcasing the female dancer's beauty. As a former male dancer and later choreographer, Blanchine said that his job was to make the beautiful more beautiful. Um, he goes on to just explain that the, the role of the male dancer to the ballerina is to, is to dance in such a way to make what is already beautiful more beautiful. I think it's a really amazing illustration of how we can live with our wives. And wives, I just wanted to say, I love people encouraging me. I love when people are kind and things like that. No one carries more weight than Jen. So if you think like, oh, my husband gets enough praise or he's cherished enough, cherish him. It matters coming from you. And so just some practical things before we let you go. Number one, be intentional with your time with each other. Be intentional with your words. Be intentional with your actions. Be intentional with your relationship with God. With your time, um, I recently read a book about um, called At Your Best. And it's talking about how you have to find your green zone and do what you do best and only you can do in that green zone and felt very convicted that rather than just writing sermons or doing that work that takes my, my best cognitive skill, um, what a great opportunity in my green zone for that nine to noon to love my wife. Write a letter, send a text, order flowers. Um, what would that look like? Dr. Gary Brashears, my professor, says that success in marriage is the sum of small efforts focused on showing love and appreciation, appreciation repeated every day. Next thing is be intentional with your words. The navigators have this list of six questions you should ask your, your spouse um, every day and at least every week. Number one, what, what brought you joy this week? Correction, it is it is weekly thing. Number two, what was something that was hard this week? Number three, what's one specific thing I can do for you this week? Number four, how can I pray for you this week? Number five, is there anything that's gonna that's gone unsaid, convictions, confessions, unresolved hurt? And number six, what's a dream or desire or thought that's been in the forefront of your mind this week? Just just some practical things with your words to be intentional to cherish. Be intentional with your actions um, and like thoughtful gifts. 
above and beyond service, physical touch. And lastly, be intentional with your relationship with God. I cannot encourage you enough. Pray blessing over your spouse, especially when they're frustrating you. Just pray, God, would you bless them? Rather than maybe something else you're praying or murmuring under your breath, just bless them. Pray with your spouse. Start to look to Jesus to fulfill you instead of them. Remember the two most important tools within a marriage are forgiveness and repentance. So just in recap, as we continue this intentional series, let's remember that God has called us into covenantal relationship, not contractual. And I think God is calling some of you just to, just to stay and to love and be faithful in your love. Number two, that he's calling us into complementary love rather than just searching for compatible love. And lastly, that we would have cherishing love rather than a calloused love. Um, we love you guys. We know that this is, might have stirred things up. But um, before you move on, invite the Holy Spirit in. Let him speak to you. Let him evaluate where you're at. I know he, you can only control yourself, but there's so much you can contribute into the soil of your marriage that this would just continue to be a reflection of Jesus' love towards us. Thanks for watching. Grace and peace to you. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.